The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Would you remain standing with me this morning in reverence of the reading of the Holy Word of God? This morning we'll be reading 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have, no, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers. For that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And all God's people said, Amen. Please remain standing with the scripture reading. In essence, I'm saving you one squat for the day is what's happening. Okay? <laughs> I do ask you to pray with me, please. Father God, we, we know the weight of your word and we know the value of your word and we know that all we all that you desire for us to know about yourself and about life and, and this call to holiness, it, it's here. It's, it's here. But we know that unless you open our eyes, unless you enlighten our hearts, we will completely miss it. So, Father, we're asking that you would make sure we don't miss it this morning. That you would enlighten the eyes of our hearts. That you would open them wide. Allow us to see your word and to see it clearly. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We continue reading together. I've thrown everybody off. I've thrown everybody <laughs> off. Let's bring back the handbell, shall we? We continue reading the second chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians. Chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. This is the inerrant. That means without error. Infallible. Sufficient, all that you need to know. And authoritative. As if God himself were to step into this room and speak to you face to face. That's what this word is. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air 
the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this, not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I ask God to bless the reading of his word. So in Luke 7, we are told about a dinner party that Jesus was invited to. It was at the home of a Pharisee named Simon. And a, a sinful woman had learned that Jesus was there. And she heard that he was reclining at table as men did in that day when you were in a home for a dinner party like this. And we read that this woman, she showed up in the home and in verse 37, it says that she brought an alabaster flask of ointment and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. The Pharisee was confused. Jesus, if you're really a prophet and you know what kind of woman this is that now touches you, you would not allow it. You're really a prophet. Did you really know the mind of God? You know anything of the hearts of men? Do not let a woman like this touch you. Jesus breaks into a short parable speaking about a man who has forgiven debts. One 500 denarii, one 50 denarii, and questioning. Who would love the most? The one who was forgiven a debt of 500 or the one who was forgiven a debt of 50? And the man rightly answers, of course, the one who's been forgiven the greater debt, he will love the most. So Jesus said, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he was forgiven little. Loves little. Perhaps one of the most precious and extravagant and self-forgetting and heartfelt pictures of worship in all the scriptures. A woman who truly understood the weight of words like, but God, because she knew her sin. Unless you know your sin, Unless you know the weight of what God has relieved you of, unless you understand the burden that hung over your head as a sinner, you will never rightly worship. You will never feel the weight that begins there at verse 4, but God. 
And I remind you the context. Paul is talking about the power of God. The power of God that is seen in raising his son from the dead and raising him into heavenly places, seating him at his right hand, putting all other authorities and powers beneath his feet. That same power seen in raising us from the dead. He says that you were dead in sins. You were cut off from the life of God. You had a heart that was in opposition to God. You were following a course, this whole world heading in one direction, all in lockstep to the beat of the same drummer because it had one drum major, Satan. That he was shaping and forming and, and working to move us all in one direction. But not only was it the world and not only was it Satan, but it was our own flesh. The desires of our heart, the desires of our mind, everything about us in opposition to God. Unable to turn and trust in God or to cry out to him in mercy because we hated him. We are at enmity with God. We've got all these forces and all these powers working against us from within and from without. This, this violent force pulling us in direct opposition to the ways of God. Who cares? So what? The water's warm. My heart's comfortable here. If it's the desires of my heart that Satan gives me. If it's the things that my mind tell me to desire that this world is marching towards, who cares? What's the big deal with sin anyway? See, if you sit in most modern evangelical churches, while they wouldn't say it explicitly, they would certainly imply it, that the big problem with sin is the sadness and loss that it brings to your own life. Or perhaps it's the destruction that it brings to your neighbor. It's the damage to fellowship and trust amongst your brethren. But the Apostle Paul, he points us to something altogether different, doesn't he? He says you are by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Beloved, I tell you that the problem with sin the problem with being dead in your sins, the problem with our sin nature and the sins that we pile on top of our nature because we desire it, because we long for it, because our minds tell us that that is life. The problem of sin is that it calls down upon us the wrath of God. This doctrine has it's fallen out of favor in recent times. Talk of the wrath of God. You scarcely find it amongst even Christian people. But this is nothing new. You recognize this. This is not something new to our age. Matter of fact, you can go back into the Old Testament and look at the times of the prophets. Every time they came and spoke to men about their sin and the wrath of God to come, what would they declare to themselves? Even their leaders. Even their religious leaders would look to them and declare peace. Peace where there is no peace. But there is another ditch that we can fall into. Those of us who are of the reformed type that embrace the full counsel of God's word and do not shy away from one single bit of what it has to say about man and God and sin and judgment and wrath. There is another ditch. You've seen it. 
those men that seem to revel in it and, and, and almost rejoice at the opportunity to tell men of their wretchedness and the wrath to come. If I'm being honest, they come across like some type of weak man. It loves to celebrate the battles of another. It makes them feel, makes them feel tough. It makes them feel strong. Talk about the wars that other men have fought in. Talk about the battles and the victories that other men have won. They almost, they almost seem to just be giddy. The opportunity to talk about the wrath of God to come. I don't know whether this is, again, to, to build themselves up. I'm strong. I'm tough. I can take the full weight of this word. Or maybe it's just to shock the people that are sitting out in the congregation to jar them in some way. But I remind you of what the heart of God is. Ezekiel 33, 11, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back. Turn back from your evil ways. Oh, why will you die, O house of Israel? Now, let me be very clear. There is no place for bashfulness or embarrassment when it comes to the righteous wrath of God. Those of you that have been with us on Wednesday nights, we have talked about the imprecatory psalms. Those psalms which call down the judgment and curse and wrath of God upon his enemies. I remind you now what I told you then. Every single time you pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come. You're praying for the coming judgment and wrath of God. The redemption of God's people always comes with the destruction of his enemies. So we're in no way bashful. We're in no way embarrassed. We celebrate. We honor. We worship the glory of God. All of it. Every last ounce of who he is. Recognizing that it's his desire the wrath of God is not a thing that he seeks to keep hidden from his people. What did the Apostle Paul say at the end of Romans 9? He says, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Why does God desire to make known his wrath to reveal something about himself? We see the glory of God just as fully, just as clearly, with just as much honor in the destruction of the wicked, in the coming of his wrath, as we do in his mercying of his elect. But beloved, the purpose is not to shock the people. The purpose is not to build us up as tough people. The purpose is to reveal the fullness of God because he is perfect. Is infinite. He's glorious. He's revealing to us something. Something about himself and something about us. Something about the state of mankind. So we don't shy back and we don't pull away and we don't ignore the passages of text that clearly speak to it. But beloved, I submit to you that any man that can teach or preach about the wrath of God without tears in his eyes is severely broken. If you're not heartbroken at the thought of God's righteous and just wrath coming down upon the heads of sinners. And if you are not overwhelmed with emotion at the weight of what you have been spared. Then you don't rightly see what God is seeking to reveal to you in this text. 
So what is the wrath of God? The Greek word here is orge. And it, and it can mean any, any range of things. It, it can just mean anger. Just ordinary, I, I'm perturbed and I'm, and I'm angry about a thing. But more often than not, when this word is used in Scripture, both in the New Testament as orge and the plethora of words that are used in the Old Testament for the wrath of God, it is something much more fiery and ferocious and fierce and passionate and full of rage. I want you to think about what the Lord said in Exodus 32, 9, speaking of his own people. I've seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them. It's the fury and the rage and the anger of God. Now, we see it play out a bit differently in the Old Testament because God was dealing with nations. He was dealing with people groups. And as one man said, because nations do not have souls, the wrath of God must be poured out upon nations in this lifetime. So, so much of what we see in the visible outpouring of God's wrath upon nations in the here and now, it's just a foretaste of the wrath of God to come in eternity. Now, I know the inclination of so many men. They say, yes, that's the Old Testament God. That was the God that was fiery and full of wrath and judgment. But Christ Jesus is come, and with him came mercy and love and forgiveness. Well, I remind you that it's with the coming of Christ Jesus, his forerunner, John the Baptist, that would look around at those that came out to him and ask, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? And speaking of Christ Jesus, the one who came, he said that his winnowing fork is in his hand and he is ready to take the shaft and throw it into the unquenchable fire. It's the Apostle Paul that says that we're to put away death, excuse me, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality and impurity and passion and evil desires and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Romans 2.8, he says, But those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. The Lord Jesus Christ in his upper room discourse, as he's there and he's, he's speaking to them about what to expect in the age to come. He says that if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. I'm moderating my tone right now because I've got to allow the word of God to stand alone. What happens is you get men and they jump and they, they beat their chest and they hoop and they holler and they try to convince you of the horrors of hell. We must allow God's word to stand on its own, recognizing that any picture he gives us of his wrath is but the faintest shadow if we could see the glimpses of God's wrath, if we could see into the pit of hell yet for one moment, your mind would turn to mush and you would fall on the ground like dead men. And this makes people incredibly uncomfortable. It makes us uncomfortable. God is love. And aren't we told that wrath and anger are things that men are meant to put away? Isn't it in the same letter of Ephesians, the fourth chapter, where he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice? 
You see, when we, when we hear these pictures of, of wrath and, and fury and, and passionate anger, we immediately picture some man that's out of control and unjustly raining down his own selfish anger on his wife or his children or his neighbor. When we see a man in, in a fit of wrath and and passionate anger, we so quickly move in to calm him down and say, brother, you ought not be like this. It's not the way that you're intended to respond. Beloved, I remind you that this is never the case with God. God's wrath is always purposeful and planned and reasoned and completely under control. When God chose to identify himself, what words does he speak? He says, the Lord is merciful and gracious. I'm slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And oh, has, has that proven to be true? How, how patient and how, how gracious and how kind has God been? If the Lord should mark iniquity, who would stand? The world would be empty if it were not for the patience and the steadfast love and the unwarranted kindness of God. Do you think of your own life and how, how patient and gentle he has been with you in your sin? Would you look through the redemptive history as it plays out throughout scripture as time and time and time again, this stiff-necked people turned their back and chose rebellion, knowing the curse that this should have brought down upon them, and yet still God was patient. God was kind. And, and not just with his covenant people. Think of the world. Think of the Amorites. Think of the people in the land of Canaan. This land that God had promised to his people. He said to Father Abraham, he said, for 400 years your people will be sojourners. They will be enslaved by another king. Why? Because the sins of the Amorites are not yet complete. How patient was God with those people that he sent Joshua to destroy? How about 400 years worth of patience? God's wrath is under complete control and purposeful and never without warning. It's not capricious. It's not unjust. It's not out of control. The wrath of God is the steady and settled indignation of a holy God. Is it visceral? Yes. In his very nature, he abhors sin. But more often than not, when we see the wrath of God spoken of throughout Scripture, when we see some of the clearest pictures of God's wrath, I'm thinking of the book of Revelation, chapter, uh, chapters of the Bible like Revelation 14. We've got a picture of a, of a crop that is, that is ripening. It is just right for the sickle to be laid down and for them to be, to be cut low. There's a great patience on God's part. And I can almost picture men as they're plumping up and they're ripening and they're filling up for themselves. Doesn't this sound like the words of Scripture? Storing up wrath for the day of wrath? They're filling themselves up with sin and rebellion and curses at the name of God while God patiently waits until they are fully ripe and the time has come. Beloved, God's wrath is anything other than out of control. It's also never unjust. Must be reminded that God knows the hearts of men. 
better than we know them ourselves. I've often wondered what that day will look like when God unfolds to me all that has happened in this life. I am thoroughly convinced that there will be days that I counted as my most holy. When I walked in the most uprightness, when I brought him the most honor and glory, and he will point to them and say, if you could have only seen your heart, you'd have known that that was nothing but wretchedness and filth. God sees the heart of man. That Abraham was right when he says, surely will not the judge of the earth do what is right? His judgments are good and they are just and they are righteous. He sees everything as it is. Beloved, you recognize that we look through a peephole in a fence. We see only this much and even that which we see, we don't see in all wisdom. But that he sees all, even the intentions and the motivations of men. And that he wisely and perfectly judges them for what they are. That's why Paul says that we are by nature children of wrath. Is he speaking to the fact that we are born children of wrath in our federal head, Adam? Because of his sin, because of his unrighteousness, that that has been imputed and counted to us so that we are born ripe for God's wrath? Absolutely. But in addition to this, this picture of us being by nature children of wrath, it's that we are fitted We are vessels of wrath. We are suited for wrath. We are deserving of wrath. That this isn't a shell game. That God judges rightly. And what he has judged is that the whole of mankind is deserving of wrath. And there will come a day when we recognize this. That day comes when our own sin has been removed from our eyes. That day comes when we are finally around the throne of God. That day comes when we finally see Christ Jesus in his infinite glory and recognize our sin for what it is. On that day, we will be crying out with the others, how long, O Lord, will you wait? How much longer will you put up with these rebels? So his his wrath against sin is far from capricious it is far from unjust must recognize also that it is a secondary attribute of God that God never shows wrath for the sake of wrath is always pointing to something beyond itself namely his own goodness and justice and righteousness and holiness that the wrath of God is never a thing that is forced upon himself. As I said, it is, it is visceral. It is of his nature that he responds the way that he responds to sin. But ultimately what this points to is his infinite perfections. The goodness of God. His love and his zeal for his own glory. I want you to think about some of the pictures in scripture that make us most uncomfortable. Nadab and Abihu. And who would come and offer strange fire before the Lord. They're worshiping God. Should not God receive all worship? Not when it's not according to his purpose. Not when it's not offered in his way. I want you to think about Uzzah who reached out his hand to steady the ark of God lest it fall in the mud. God strikes the man dead. Thus is the holiness of God. That he is of two pure eyes to look upon anything which is unclean. That he will respond in righteous indignation, in fiery fury, in passionate wrath upon anything that is not holy and pure and righteous and clean. That's why the man Isaiah stands before God, having finally seen him in this vision. And what does he say? Woe to me, I am unclean. Was Isaiah wrong? Was this an overstatement or an exaggeration for him to say, I am undone? 
Surely I will die. Beloved, that's the problem. We don't see our sin the way we should see our sin. We don't see God the way we should see God. Therefore, we don't understand his wrath the way we should understand his wrath. We must recognize that this is an incredibly personal thing. God is not some cosmic police officer that says, look, I love you and I don't. Look, I wouldn't do this. If it weren't for the rules, I wouldn't do this. But you're evil and I'm good, and so look, this is just a thing that's got to happen. No, he despises. Beloved, I want you to picture that thing that you hate more than you hate anything else in all the world. Is it snakes? Is it spiders? Is it murderers? Is it someone that has harmed your family? What is it? What is the thing that you, dis- that you abhor, that you despise, that everything within you repulses at the idea of this? This is the response of God to sin. Everything within him cries out for wrath. Because the law that he has revealed to us, you must understand, again, these are not just some cosmic rules. This is a revelation of who he is. God reveals to us something about his nature, something of who he is. God says that thou shalt not tell a lie because God is the God of truth. God says thou shalt not commit adultery because God is a faithful God. And every time we break his commandments, we are rejecting not only his sovereignty as Lord, we are rejecting him as he is. We're showing our contempt for him, our contempt for his nature. That's why Paul says that all have sinned and what have they done? They've fallen short of the glory of God. That our very purpose for being created, our purpose for existence is to radiate, is to show forth the glory of God to his creation. And every time we walk in opposition to that glory, we are showing the world he is not worthy of our praise. He is not worthy of your honor. He can be laughed at and mocked and spit upon without any repercussion. That's why in Romans 1 where we see the picture of God's wrath revealed. What is what's happening here? It's a constant trading down. Man looks to the infinite glory of God and said, I prefer snakes and creepy crawly things. More often than not, I prefer myself and my own ways. And surely you recognize that the God of the universe cannot condone or wink at such a thing. That would be to co-sign. That would be to authorize. That would be to approve of those who spit on his name. That's the epitome of sin and God cannot sin. So for God to make little of sin, for God to pass over sin, to God to ignore sin, would be for him to approve, to sign off on, to agree with the sinner. So we must recognize this fury of God, this this wrath of God, it is not just directed towards sin, but towards sinners. You've all heard, you've all probably at various times in your life recited that line that God loves the sinner but hates the sin. And I understand the heart behind that. I believe the words of John 3, 16, that God did express love towards the whole world in the sending of his son. But I ask you to listen to the words of Psalm 5. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness, Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes, for you hate 
all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. I ask you to remember all that we have studied. These are the three weeks of bad news, by the way, before the best news you've ever heard. And I ask you to remember all that we have studied in these three weeks. We are sons of disobedience. This is who we are by nature, by very nature, by our twisted desires, the desires of our flesh and of our mind. The problem isn't the things that we do. The problem is who we are. If, if you were to say, okay, God will hate the sin, but he will love the sinner, what part of you is he intended to love exactly? This is why Psalm 711 says that God is sinner, angry with sinners every day. This is why when the day of judgment comes, it is not your sin that is thrown into hell. It is the sinner. <coughs> We are born under wrath. How we come into this world. This is why Jesus says in John 3, 36, that whoever doesn't obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. We are born swimming in a pool of sin in one direction headed for the wrath of God. And then we spend every day after that piling up for ourselves. What did he say in Romans 2? Storing up for ourselves, treasuring up for ourselves, wrath for the day of wrath. We're reminded that God's wrath is not merely a disposition. God isn't just angry with sinners every day. That there's an action to come because of this wrath. There's a judgment. There's a punishment. There's a response. See, it's bad enough to have someone that you love angry at you, isn't it? Even someone that you don't love. Look, some of us have thicker skin than others. But the reality is, when there's people out there who hate you, when there's people out there who are angry at you, it's a very unsettling thing, even a fearful thing. But to know that someday that anger will drive that man to act. And to know that that one who is angry with you, and to know that that one who will act, is the omnipotent God of the universe. The God whose power knows no end. The God who breathes the stars. That he will turn the full force of that in upon you. There's nothing more terrifying than this. Recognizing that it is he who casts men into hell. Unending, unending fire of torment. The darkness. All the pictures. All the pictures that scripture paints for us. Again, faint images of the reality. That he will respond. Isaiah 66 Beginning in verse 15, for behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger and fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire, the Lord entered into judgment and by his sword with all flesh, those slain by the Lord shall be many. You understand this, that the wrath that comes, the judgment that comes, the action that comes because of the anger that God feels, it is none other than God himself. So that when we speak about salvation, when we speak to men, when we speak to our children about the need to be saved, what are we asking them to be saved of? What are we telling them they need to be saved from? It's not from their sin. It's not from this world. It's not from Satan. Beloved, men need to be saved from God. 
And I know how your heart says, I don't like to think about God like that. I don't like to think about God like that. Again, I tell you that's in part because we don't understand fully the holiness of God. Nor do we understand fully the sinfulness of sin. And, and that's what makes sin such a So it makes sin such a dreadful thing because it blinds us to the glory of God and it blinds us to the gravity of our sin. Great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the reason we do not feel the weight of our sin is because of our sin. It's that disease which masks itself. It's that that disease which blinds us to its own existence. And so lest you sit there and think that I'm exaggerating, or lest you sit there and think that I'm just, I'm trying to scare you. I'm I'm trying to brand myself as some particular type of preacher, the the hellfire and brimstone kind of guy. As you could consider the words that we're going to come to as we move into the second half of the book of Ephesians. And begin talking about what this life of holiness and obedience to God is meant to look like. He tells us all the things that we're meant to put away. Sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness. Listen to these. Filthiness. Foolish talking. Crude joking. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God will come down upon men because they talked crudely. We don't make a big enough deal about our sin because we're so blinded by our sin. But more than this, More than just not recognizing the glory of God and more than not recognizing the weight of our own sin, we prove that we disbelieve the word of God. So many men, because of the mercy and love and goodness of Christ Jesus, because he is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, that's the very thing that holds them back from embracing the wrath of God. But I fast forward you to the end of the book. Revelation 6.15 says, Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, and the rich, and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling on the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne. And from who? Who must we be hidden from? Whose wrath should we fear? Who is coming to deliver the righteous judgment of God? So much so that kings of nations call out for rocks to fall down upon him who is seated upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. That same one who gave his life to spare men from their sins is the one who comes to lay low the sinners of the world. For great is the day of wrath that has come and who can stand? And we see this wrath even now, not just in the day to come, not not just in in, in the day of wrath as it comes when when Christ Jesus returns for the second time. Scripture tells us the wrath of God is revealed today. It's what Paul says in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. 
that the wrath of God is seen even now as he removes his hand of restraint and turns men over to their own sin. But you want to know what's so damning about this? That sin is the very thing that they want. So they count it as a reward from God. Even as they pay in their bodies the due penalty for their sin, the world around them applauds and gives them honor for the sin that they plunge headlong into because that's what their heart and their minds want. I would count it cruelty were it not from the hand of the holy and infinitely right and just God. And we see the wrath of God even now. As he removes his hand and he hands men and even nations over to themselves. But for now, because it is restrained. For the sake of the elect. For the sake of God's people. Because the wrath of God has not come in the full fury of its weight. Because it is restrained. I picture it like a dam holding back the waters as they are rushing down upon a town who sits there sleeping not knowing what awaits them. That even as God holds this weight back, the people rejoice and celebrate thinking, surely we've gotten away with it. Surely we've won. Surely the wrath of God will never come. But if they could see it for one moment, would they not be like Christ Jesus in the garden saying, let this cup pass from me. I can't bear it. Jonathan Edwards in Sinners of the Hand of an Angry God said that the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string. And justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps that arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. We are storing up for ourselves wrath for the day of wrath and it is the justice in the hand of God which draws back that arrow and he aims it at the heart of unrepentant sinners and there is nothing that stays that hand other than the goodness of God and that not owed to a single reprobate. No promise. No obligation. They have no, clear, they have no understanding the game they play as they dance with their sin, not understanding that in a moment they could find themselves standing face to face from the, with a God that they have cursed, who is furious, who is ready to pour out his wrath upon their heads. And the longer he delays in this kindness, the longer he waits, the more wrath they store up. But the day will come. The day will come. Just as the days of, of Noah, people will be going about their business, eating and drinking and marrying and giving their children in marriage and thinking they've got the world by the tail. And the dam will break. And the flood will come. There will be nothing to save them. There will be no mercy. There will be no forgiveness. You, you recognize that even the worst sinner in this world has never lived for one moment outside of the mercy of God. Even those who curse his name today, they taste of the goodness of God even now. We cannot fathom the weight of what a world looks like when God fully removes his hand of restraint from the fires of our own heart. 
the hate raging within our own heart towards him. He removes that hand and he lets loose of that arrow and it flies towards the hearts of sinful men. They feel the full weight of his righteous indignation for every last sin. The scripture tells us in Ezekiel 8, 18, I will act in my wrath. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. Isn't God required to hear the cries of, pain, of, of struggling men, of men under the weight of their own sin? Beloved, no. That's the point. He owes no man mercy. He owes no man forgiveness. He owes no man grace. He owes them justice. And if they can for a moment in that day muster a cry before him, spare us. Just dip your finger into a drop of water and touch it to our tongue. He will laugh. He will not receive their cry. He will turn his head. He will cover his ears. He will continue to pour out his wrath. I trod them in my anger. And I trample them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spatters on my garments and stains all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. Forever and ever and ever. God's zeal and his passion and his love for his own name will drive him to destroy the sinner. But for now, he extends his hand to today. As long as there's still life in our bodies and as long as there's still air in our lungs, this same God he extends his hand and he offers peace and he says, why will you die? Why must you die? The day will come and you'll recognize that you can't hide in caves. That the rocks falling upon your head will do you no good. That there's only one safe place in all the universe in Christ. That's the problem with being outside of Christ. It's not just that you miss out on spiritual blessings. It's that that's the only place in all the universe where you can be safe from the wrath of God. So fly to Christ. Run to Christ. Hide in Christ. It's the only place where you will be safe. The only being in all the universe that has ever, you, you recognize it. When we get to heaven, when the day comes, when we get to heaven and we're there with the angels and we're rejoicing before the throne of God, that there will be only one there who has ever tasted the wrath of God, and that's Christ. We'll have no experiential knowledge of the wrath of God, only his goodness. But there's one there in the middle who is worthy of our praise, the one in whom we have hidden ourselves. And he says, I know this wrath. I have tasted it without mercy. I have drunk it down in its fullness. And today he extends his hand and he says, come, hide in me. This is the 
picture of the but God. You were, by nature, children of God, like the rest of mankind. Again, he's not just talking about the world. This isn't just a story of those people out there. This is a story of where you once were, Christian. We were all once there until you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him. Even as you came, even as you were in complete opposition to him and everything within you, the world and the devil and your flesh was, was at enmity with God, that same God, he reached down into your chest, he took out that heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh, he enlightened the eyes of your heart, he gave you ears to hear, you heard the gospel and you believed, you said, that's where I need to be. I believe that the wrath of God is coming and I believe that that's the only safe place. How'd you come to know this? How'd you come to believe this? It's the grace of God. That in a moment you went from being a child of wrath and a son of disobedience to an adopted child of God. The same power by which he would have once destroyed you, he has now turned completely and wholly for you. Infinitely for you. And I don't know how this works. You were actually children of wrath. Already chosen in Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. You know why we had to be in Christ before the foundation of the world? There was nothing lovable in you. There's nothing to love. But somehow... In the incredibly complicated and complex mind of God, he could love you in Christ before the foundation of the world as he hated you in his wrath for however many years you walked on this earth. Don't ask me how. But the scripture says it. That's right. St. Augustine said in a wonderful and divine way, even when he hated us, he loved us. Even as we walked in opposition to him and rebellion against him and all manner of evil and unrighteousness, our wrath had already been satisfied. It had already been paid in full by Christ Jesus. But still, it wasn't until you believed. It wasn't until you heard the gospel of Christ Jesus and believed that all that love and, and all that righteousness and all that had been accomplished was applied to you. This is why we share the gospel. Why we cry out to men to repent and believe. Because we don't know who's who. But the love of God has been shown that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we're enemies of God, he, he welcomed us to have peace with him and, and reconciliation with him. In the words that David read earlier, for God has not destined us for wrath. It's God who sets the destinies of men. It says that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Christ Jesus our Lord, who 
died for us. So that whether you're awake or whether you're asleep, you might always live with him. We were doing everything we could to get to a destination. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, following the desires of our own heart. We were dead men going along with the beat of the drummer called Satan. We were headed towards one destiny and one destiny only. That was the day of wrath. And the God of the universe says, no, sir. No, ma'am. I've not destined you for that. I've destined you to obtain salvation through my son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, encourage one another with these things and build each other up just as you have been doing. Do you understand that's what we do in this place every Sunday morning? I cry out these words to the non-believers among us and I don't know who's who. Some have identified themselves, surely, but it's got to become some who say, Lord, Lord, but he never knew you. And so I preach these words and I exhort and I cry out and I call you while God's hand is extended. Would you take it? Would you hide in Christ? And we teach our children, get into Christ. And I look to those of you who are in Christ. So very in Christ that you're counted as part of his body. I look to you and I encourage you. And I say, this is the God. This is the extravagance of this God who we worship. The inexhaustible love of this God that we worship. Are you encouraged? Are you not built up? Can you imagine if we actually believed all this? Can you imagine what our lives would look like if we fully believed this? The urgency, the urgency with which we would call out to those we love. And the joy that would be in our heart every morning when we opened our eyes and found ourselves yet again under the blessed favor of God. Father God, we love you because you first loved us and we praise you and we thank you we thank you that in Christ Jesus we have obtained salvation that we are saved we are being saved and that someday we will be saved Father I pray that if there be one here that don't don't recognize yet the weight of their sin don't recognize the danger that they are in, don't understand that the only thing, in the words of Edwards, the only thing holding them out of the fires of hell in this very moment are the hands of an angry God. Father, I pray that you would, by your spirit, cause them today to repent, to believe, and to be saved. For those of us that are in him, Father, I pray that you would cause us to rejoice to live with confidence and absolute lack of concern for anything this world brings against us, knowing that we are secure and safe in your arms. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.